Hey everybody, you're listening to the Poema Church Podcast. Today we're sharing a message from our latest series. We believe the Word of God in Scripture is powerful and has real-life application to our lives today. We hope this message encourages you. Get connected and learn more about us by visiting our website, poemachurch.ca. I got to tell you, I feel very at home here with you all. Um, some very kind worship members prayed with me before the service, and I just felt like I was home being with you guys. And I've only been part of two churches in my whole life, my church growing up and then my church since I was married and moved away. And it's amazing that you can come to another local church, and it's the same Holy Spirit, the same family uh, same word of God and like the Holy Spirit speaking to Quentin, the essence of the message I'm speaking today. So thank you for sharing that. I could just probably get down right now, right? Uh, No, just give me one second, guys. I'm just going to log in here. Sorry about this, you guys. So some of you probably have no clue who I am and why I am up on this stage. But my husband and I are part of the elder team in our second location in Hamilton, Poema. And um, Pastor Matt and Rach asked me to share a message with you that has been on my heart, that God's been working in my life over the last, you know, my whole life, but particularly this last year. And uh, I'm very honored to stand here and be with you guys today. Um, and it's funny, uh, the, guy, the people at the back asked me what the title for the message was. And I kind of laughed because I was actually looking to my nine-year-old son last night to get the, me- the title for the message. He was laying on the bed where I was practicing in my room. And uh, I'm practicing and he's like, Mom, you're doing really good. I'm like, oh, awesome. He loves it. It's going to be great. It's so good. And then I finished my practice and he... I said, buddy, you know, like, what did you take away from what I was saying? He's like, mom, I don't know. I was reading a book. I was like, oh, no. I was really hoping I could get something across to him and then take that. But it was pretty funny. He was great. So I'm going to pray real quick before I hop into reading the word and just pray that God will help us not to be reading anything other than him right now so we could get what he's trying to say to us. So, uh, Father God, we love you. There's nobody like you, and thank you that we don't have to take ourselves so seriously. Jesus, you are the one that was more joyful than anybody else that ever lived. So we just look to you, we put our eyes on you, and ask that we wouldn't be reading anybody else in the room or any other thing that would distract us, but that our hearts would be open to your words today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to come out with a punch here in Philippians chapter 2. The title of the message, I came up with one, is called The Great Submission. All right? So Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. 
He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should declare that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I don't know about you, but I often find myself assuming things about everything. (laughs) And over the last five years, I took a course to be a life coach. And in that process, I learned how imperative it is to think about your thinking and realize that we all get caught up in ruts. And I stumbled across this video on YouTube, and um, it's by a guy named Trevor Maber. It's a TED Talk where he talks about this thing called the ladder of inference. Now, in the video, he asks everyone who's watching to take a moment and imagine a microscopic ladder in the subconscious of your mind. Now, this ladder represents the process that we all go through analyzing situations that happen to us and making up beliefs that we have. So I'm just going to run you through that real quick. So the ladder of inference, the first rung on the ladder of inference is raw data. So the raw data is what we see, and we, uh, we take in the facts. We observe what's going on. It's pure data. Number two is the process where we begin to filter this data. So our brain actually picks and chooses what we focus on based on our preferences and our tendencies, our upbringing, the experiences that we've had. And then we begin to assign meaning to, those, to that data that we have picked and cho- chosen. And then comes assumptions. We begin to assume things based on the meaning that we've created, which leads to us drawing conclusions about things. We, we basically hop on one thing, and it's when we draw conclusions that emotional reactions are created inside of us. At that point, we adjust beliefs. So now, do, 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 I've gone up the ladder, and all of a sudden, I have altered my meaning making, the belief that I live my life by, and the way I think about the people that are in the circumstance that I'm going through. And then I take action based on this belief. Now, there's something amazing that can happen when new data comes into our belief system. It can be a short circuit in our brain. So when unexpected information comes or somebody says or does something that we don't, you know, we haven't seen play out, it does a short circuit in our brain. And all of a sudden, everything starts to change. And we might need to take some new actions in our life. So in this video by Trevor Maber, he does a little scenario where you would use this data to see a guy who gets cut off in a parking lot and what he does next. So, but instead of that today, I'm gonna to take you through the, the quick story of Paul, the apostle, and how this affected his life. So we're gonna pick up Acts chapter 22, where Paul has been arrested. He's been falsely accused for defiling the temple and breaking Jewish laws, and he's defending himself in front of a court. So he says, brothers and esteemed fathers, listen to me as I offer my defense. And when they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus, 
a city in Sicilia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way. So those are Christians he persecuted. He hounded some of them to death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. The high priests and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. For I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. But as I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. The people with me saw the light, but they didn't understand what the voice was speaking to me. And I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything you are to do. So Paul that we hear about right here is a Christian. He's the same guy that wrote the beginning passage we read about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. But in his story, in his defense, there was a point in his life when he was hunting down and murdering Christians. So something happened to this guy that was unexpected, that short-circuited his belief system, that his whole life changed. So just ima imagine if Paul truly believed that Christians should die, he also believed that he was honoring God in everything that he was saying and doing. He was, he was passionate. It was his life goal to honor God. And so somewhere in his mind, he had concluded that it would be good to kill Christians. That's wild. He truly believed it was good. And I'm so curious what happened in that moment when he heard the voice. What did he really hear? What did he really see that so interrupted his thinking that he went on to do the very thing that he was killing people for? That's wild, guys. That's a complete turnaround in life. And I think the key goes to the fact that he says, what, who are you, first of all? Who are you, Lord? And what should I do, Lord? Those were his responses to this um, encounter. So let's talk about the word Lord, because we don't you know, hone in on that idea much in our culture. It's like a very old word. But in the New Testament church, Jesus Christ is Lord is actually the four-word creed that they lived by. It was the way, the marked way that you knew that somebody was a follower of Jesus. If they were able to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And Lord to, me, to them carried a lot of weight. It wasn't something you would nonchalantly say. It was powerful. Their, their concept of Lord was that he was the master and the owner of the whole universe. 
that he was the king above every single king that ever lived and ever would live. And it meant that they would bow a knee to him like you would do when you would come before a king. You would swear your loyalty. You would live for that king. It's interesting. When we call Jesus Lord, it's a recognition that Jesus is actually the sovereign ruler of the universe. But not just that he's this big, powerful, fearful God, but that same God was the one who bled and died on the cross for us. What Jesus was doing when he died on the cross was he was showing us, number one, he is God. He, first of all, emptied himself of every right and privilege that he had coming to him as God to come here and be a human. And then he was willing to obey his father, whom he was on equal status with in heaven. He was willing to obey him completely and do what his father wanted. And it also says in the Bible that we read it, that God elevated him because of his obedience to the highest place in the universe. And also it says later on in the scriptures that one day Jesus will just hand back that power and authority to God. Like it's nothing to him. Jesus is good because he's trustworthy and he's not power hungry. He's literally the picture of what love looks like. Selfless, obedient, loving. And I think that, you know, if I were to make my own conclusions about the story of Paul, of what Paul saw in that moment was that it was equal authority, equal power, equal love, and it just blew his mind. He'd never seen anything like that. He'd heard the gospel preached before. We know that. He was there when, he, when Stephen was killed, one of Jesus' disciples. He'd heard it all before. But something happened in that moment where Jesus became Lord to him. So I'm going to go through a bit more scripture today. Um, this next chunk is a bit longer. It's from John chapter 6. And you guys can read through it all on your own as you're going through this on your own this week. Um, but I'm going to jump a bit. So I'm not trying to be a heretic. It's really all there. Okay, and I'll kind of give you guys the verses that we're jumping to. I just didn't want to keep you you till three because Colleen's cooking for me today. So, uh, (laughs) all right, so we'll start in John John 6, 26, and we're coming off the tales of um, Jesus just having fed over 5,000 people with a couple of barley loaves and a few pickled fish. And these people are like so amped up. They want to make him king. They've hunted him down. He's gone off to a different place, and they've hunted him down and want him to do more for them. So Jesus replies to them, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me his seal of approval. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Same question that Paul asked. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. 
The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one... Sorry. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though you've seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. So verse 47, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me has eternal life. Verse 53, so Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who, who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Verse 63, The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. Verse 67, Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Okay, I know that was a chunk. And there's eating blood and, or eating flesh and drinking blood and all kinds of metaphors and things going on. And truthfully, when I was studying for this, there are books and commentaries galore to, you know, interpret the scripture. It's deep and it's complicated, but I just want to give a couple of little facets of what we can see here in the scripture. So the parallel that's being drawn with this story is we have Israelite people who are coming to Jesus and they're talking about manna. That's our first clue that it's pointing us back to the Old Testament. These people are a picture of exactly what Quentin was talking about. The people that God had saved out of slavery. He delivered them from Egypt with these amazing, miraculous signs. He'd opened the Red Sea. He had, um, you know, basically shown Pharaoh up and flouted all of his power by showing that he was more powerful. These people had been around these incredible views of God and seen the things that God could do. And yet, as the journey went on, they wanted to do their own thing over and over and over again. They wanted the stuff that God could do for them and not to actually know the God that had saved them and live the way that he had set out for them. So it's dangerous because we can be in the very presence of God and feel the beauty of his spirit, 
be around his people, have miracles even happen in our lives or through our lives, and still not know the God we say that we're serving. And we can actually go through our whole lives doing this if we're not careful. And the point of John chapter 6 is that it all surrounds this idea of the bread and the drink of Jesus. So in verse 53, Jesus said, I say it again, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you can't have eternal life in you. But Jesus actually never said that line before. That was the first time we saw that actual phrase said. So that means that he's given us a key to understand this earlier. That's the way that this was written. And it points us to verse 35 when Jesus replied, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He's talking about spiritual life that comes through his words. So when we hear the words of God, they either draw us in or they push us away. And if we see that God is good and that we choose, we want to trust him, he's real, we come close. He hands us his word and we eat them. And it goes in and it gives us life inside of us. And to drink the blood means to believe. And in the New Testament, to believe was not a mental assent. It was an obedience. So to come to Jesus and to eat the bread is to trust him enough to come close, and to believe is to actually obey what he has said. And then, just in case you're like my son at nine years old and are just, just maybe making sure that Jesus isn't a cannibal, Jesus reminds us at the end that it's the flesh that counts for nothing. This is not about the body. We're not taking nibbles on Jesus, you know? It's like he's talking about, you need to eat my words, And the beautiful thing about the Bible is that there are all of these words that are laid out, and we can read them, we can eat them, but he also gave us his life to understand what those words meant lived out. He is the actual word of God. It's very profound because this whole passage is John's way of giving us the background significance of communion. So that idea of the bread and the cup that's mentioned here, it's showing us the significance of what it means to take communion. And it's ironic because John's gospel is actually the only one of the gospels that doesn't recount the story of the Last Supper. And some scholars actually believe that the reason he did this is because he never wanted communion to be relegated to a ritual. That it all started with a picnic on a hill. And what scholars believe he's trying to say is that every meal that we eat with purpose is meant to be a sacred moment where the bread, the food that we're taking in, and the drink that we're drinking is reminding us of Jesus' death. It's wild. What he's talking about is a life that is consumed with Jesus, constantly remembering, constantly staying on track. So when we go up on the mountain we're there. When we're down in the valley in the temptation to worship other things, we're remembering. Because Psalms talks about how Jesus makes a table for us in the presence of our enemies. So right in that moment, the worst temptation you're going through, you eat dinner, 
and you get the chance to remember Jesus. That's how practical it's supposed to be. And yes, we have these amazing moments where we sit down and purposefully take communion and we remember the story of Jesus. We remind each other at a dinner. We remind each other in a service of Jesus, but it's so much more than that. And we have the opportunity to have the life of Jesus transferred to us. Ultimately, guys, we will obey what we trust. And whatever we trust is what we have decided is good for us, just like Paul was doing what was good for him until that changed. So there's another group of people that experience something like this. And I know I'm throwing a lot of scripture at you guys, but that's the whole point of why we're here. So uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 36 Um, Paul is preaching to thousands of people. He'd just been filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's not preaching an easy message. Like, not at all. This is what he says to them. He's like, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. He's actually putting an indictment out there. Hey, guys, you killed God's son. That's a nice welcoming message, right? Hey, welcome to church. You killed God's son. Um, But this is how it hit them. It said that his words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Catch that little tag? Brothers, what should we do? There's There's a short circuit that happened there. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those who are far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. And all the believers, all the obeyers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miracles, miraculous signs and wonders, And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in their homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Excuse me. This is where the principles kind of all fall in line with what we're talking about. This is where the rubber hits the road for us as a church, as a fellowship of believers. We hear truth, and we're faced with a decision of what we're going to do. And that truth might be, you know, you hearing about Jesus for the first time. That truth might be that there's a conflict between the way that I'm living and the way the Bible says is the way to follow Jesus and live. And we all have a choice in that moment. Do we carry on our road, or do we take the fork? And do we go the way of wisdom? Do we go the way of Jesus? And if we choose to repent and turn around from our road, 
and go the way of God, that's the moment we call Jesus Christ Lord. That's where we put his way above our way. And this will lead to a spark inside of us of devotion, where the Bible, the words of God, being taught what Jesus is all about, becomes a central part of our lives. And that's what leads us to start getting together and having lunch and being like, did you guys just hear what the word of God said? Like, I'm struggling with this. This is not how I'm living. This is not what I want to do. I don't like the way things are going. I want it to go this way. But my attitude, when I read this or I hear this, my attitude is saying I want to go the other way. And this is why we need a whole community of believers to do this with. Because when one person's down or going the wrong way, another person is on the mountain. Like Quentin was saying, the other person has just had a revelation that can lead you, you know, the right way. You know, ultimately what followed them hearing the truth and centering their lives on Jesus was that there was a love-induced obedience that happened in their lives. Because ultimately, love will produce obedience. The Bible's very clear that the ones that love Jesus obey him. And that is submission. That's the great submission. The one I love is going this way. I'm going this way too. Now, I heard this story... And it bothered me for a long time. I couldn't quite wrap my head around it. There was this preacher in the 80s who had embezzled money. And he was put in prison for it. He was indicted. And he reached out to a a well-known pastor and asked him to come and visit him in prison. And the pastor was totally intrigued with this guy. Like, how did this guy get where he was? And why is he reaching out to me? And what led to all of this? So he goes and he listens to the guy talk. And then all of a sudden... He, he works up the courage to ask the guy, when did you stop loving Jesus? And the guy was like, I never stopped loving Jesus. I just never made him Lord of my life. When I first heard it, I was like, okay, so he never made him Lord of his life. But the truth is, if we never make Jesus Lord of our lives, we actually don't love him. We just love what he does. We love the miracle. We love the feeling we get when we're at church. We love the social aspect. We love um, the change in circumstances because I'm making better choices. That's not loving Jesus. That's not loving Jesus. Loving Jesus is making him Lord and your whole life turning around. Now, my husband and I were chatting about this, and he was like, it's not just one moment. It's so true. It's not just one moment. But there is a great submission that happens in our lives. And we can follow along with the crowd for a long time, but each of us have to pass through that submission point. And then, good news, there's a million other submissions after that point. And we all face those choices. And... You know, we opened up with Philippians 2, 2, but I'm going to read the next part that comes in verse 12 and 13. Paul says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. 
Obey God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Now, I just want to get a little more personal with you guys. You know, in the past six months, I went through a really big struggle for submission. Um, I, had, I had hit a point where I, I had kind of gone dark. I, there was like no want to do what pleased God. I really wanted to do my own thing. It would have been a lot easier to just go off into the sunset and I probably would have been justified. But some wise elders in my life, they, they just told me not to make any rash decisions, just to be still. But I was lost for months. I just kept going around the same problem in my heart over and over and over again until I read this book. And it was a kind of, have you ever had the Holy Spirit or like just drop a little like nudge to you like, hey, you should read that book. This happens to me a lot. You'll have to ask my husband. Like, I have to put a limit on my book purchases. But um, <laughs> it was just this moment where I opened this book, and the author is saying in, like, the first page, if you've ever gone through a harsh or cruel experience in your life, then your automatic tendency will be to govern yourself, to avoid any more pain. And it was just in that moment I... I realized that I had been in this temptation to start ruling my own life again. And it crept up real fast. Like, the, the telltale signs were like, I was getting really judgy about people, and I was like, accusing people in my heart, starting to gossip about stuff. I think it should go this way. This is what I think should happen. It was all like, I, 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 I. And I, I went through our church in Hamilton, did a week of prayer and fasting. And I, thank God I was actually not so far gone that I didn't, like, participate, because it was in that obedient moment, ironically, that I found myself praying the Lord's Prayer over and over again. And the peace that stuck with me was, Lord, don't allow me to be led away into temptation, but deliver me from evil. And Holy Spirit showed me something in that moment that, I couldn't tell what was good and what was evil in that moment. Like, it just wasn't possible. I was like, it could go this way or it could go this way. And he's like, hey, you've been eating from the tree of knowing good and evil in the garden. You've been playing God, and it's killing you. You need the words of life that come from the tree of life. And it was in, in that moment when he showed me that the tree of life, the ultimate tree of life, is the cross. It's that tree of life where Jesus died and showed us that it's only through death to your agenda that the struggle to submit can finally be over. All that pain for months was just this struggle of, will I trust God? Will I obey him? And it was painful. Like, people that knew me were like, I, I had to call and apologize that, to them because I was like, guys, like, I was, like, rough. I shouldn't have said that to you. I shouldn't have talked like that. I was wrong. And the amazing thing is that when we eat from this tree of life, this way of death that Jesus has, like, told us is the best way, 
what happens is when Jesus died on the cross, it made way for the Holy Spirit to enter the scene. And it's when we choose to let go of our agenda or our way or our God or our thing that the Holy Spirit comes in and starts to recreate the desire for what's good, truly good. And Jesus being on that high vantage point, he was raised up off the cross to the highest vantage point in the universe. And that's where he can see what's good because he has the highest perspective. I only see what's in my little bubble. I have no, no perspective on what is truly good, but he does. And so if we wrap all of that together, what I want to encourage you guys with today is that we as a church, we need to break bread together. We need to eat a meal together and let it be a moment where we center on what's important. When it says, you know, don't stop getting together, encourage each other daily. What that's saying is not just, hey, you're a great person. That's not the kind of encouragement the Bible's talking about. The encouragement is, look at what Jesus did. Let's go that way. That's the way we're supposed to go. Let's find the good that God has for this church, for our group, for this city, for our lives, for our families. It's finding out what Jesus Christ is Lord means in all of the spheres of life, not just in this place, but in our marriages, in our workplaces. It's about submitting. And that is the word that God has been working in my heart. And I can tell you honestly that the moment that I said, God, I will trust you. God, I'm going to do the hard thing. I'm going to not take the easy road. The peace that we've been talking about this morning, that came. I had no other answers in that moment except that I had submitted. And that's what I want to pray for all of you today. I know that as a church, you guys are a local church. You guys are going through huge transitions. I'm well aware of that. Like, I love you guys. And my prayer for you all today is that you would come through this submitted to Jesus and you would come through sweeter than you have ever been before. Can I pray for you all today? Jesus, thank you that you are God and you have the highest perspective and you know what's good for new song. You speak to the leaders that you've placed over this church, but you are the shepherd that shepherds all the churches across the earth. And we, right now, for those that believe the words that you've said today in your word, who are willing to obey, we bow the knee today, God, to you. God, I pray that you would inspire your people and challenge their belief systems. You would continue to reveal your words to them, what you're speaking to them individually, and what you're speaking to them as a whole group. Because it's not my Father in heaven, it's our Father in heaven. I'm just going to pray that our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth like it is in heaven. Give us today the bread that we need, and forgive us our sins. Uh, the same way that we forgive the people that have sinned against us. 
God, don't allow us to be led away into temptation, but deliver us from every evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening. To hear more, subscribe to this podcast and connect with us on our website, poemachurch.ca.